This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Before I start, I want to mention something that I think is very important. Um, you hear today, and anyone certainly who's watching the stream, are involved in a program that's run by two organizations which are tremendously dedicated to the client's role. TorahAnytime.com and Chazak are two organizations which I'm always not just honored and glad to join with, but I consider it a tremendous, tremendous chutz. And they're doing work that's phenomenal. I hear from people all the time, TorahAnytime.com, wow, they have so many shurim. I think even the schmooze is on that. Um, and I find that I'm very complimented. Really, thank you. Um, so, and I want you to know that it's a tremendous organization, tremendous institution. Chazak is constantly running programs and you're nene from it. Why do I mention that? Because even though it's obvious, it's not so obvious. You have to support it. And I have to let you guys in on a little secret. I do this because I know. People tell me all the time, I listen to the shmooze for hours, two hours a day on the way to work, on the way back, two hours a day, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then we run a fundraiser and uh, silence, I don't hear a word. Oh. Which is okay. I'm not here to appeal to you to make a donation to the Shmuz. I am here to tell you you should make a donation to TorahAnytime.com and to Chazak because they're fantastic organizations and you're benefiting from them. And the more money that they have, clearly the better work they're going to do. And this is unsolicited. I'm not a fundraiser, nor do I get anything from this. Um, I consider myself friends of them, but you should know it. both are tremendous organizations. And whatever you can do to support them will support your community, will support yourself, and it's a, it's a mitzvah gadol. <clears throat> Yeshaya Novi, <clears throat> when he goes to rebuke the Klyasrol, uses a very powerful lushan. Yoda Shor Koneu, the ox knows its master. The Chamor Evos Ba'alov, and the donkey knows the stall of its owner. Yisrael Loyada, the Klai Yisrael, didn't know Amila's bone, my nation didn't contemplate. Yeshaya, with those words, blames the Klai Yisrael for being less than behemoths, lower than animals, less than an ox, lower than a chamor. And Rashi says, don't make a mistake. It's not allegorical, it's not figurative, it's literal. Says Rashi, what Yeshai is saying is that Akash Baruch is delivering a message. Hashem says to the Jewish people, I gave a nature to the ox. The ox's nature is to pull the plow. The ox doesn't wake up one morning and say, I don't want to work today. I don't want to pull. The ox obeys its nature. I gave a nature to the chamor, to the donkey. It lifts the load, it carries the load. The donkey doesn't wake up one morning and say, It's hot. I don't want to carry the load today. They obey the nature I give them. You, the Klyasol, you've sunk in lower than the ox, lower than the donkey. I gave you a nature and you've abused it. You no longer do as you were programmed to do. And explains Rashi, that's exactly what Yeshaya Novi is saying. And that's what he's saying to the Jewish people. 
you've sunk in lower than an ox. And I think if you think about this Rashi, it's rather difficult to understand. Because if you ever watch a man get on top of a horse, you may make the following observation. The horse is huge. It weighs 1,500 pounds. The man is light. The man maybe weighs 150 pounds. And the man says, go left, and the animal goes left. The man says, go right, and the horse goes right. The man says, gallop, and the horse gallops. The horse doesn't say, hmm, I don't want to gallop today. But you know why? Because that's the nature of the horse. It's submissive, it's subservient, that's the nature of the horse. And not every animal has that nature. Try putting a saddle on a polar bear. Or a lion. You'll find a very different reaction. The reason why a horse obeys the man is because that's the way Hashem programmed it to act. And it doesn't have free will, and it doesn't have two competing voices, and it acts that way because Hashem programmed it to do that. It's subservient, it's submissive. But that's not you and I. You and I are comprised of two very different parts. It's part of me that's Kaddush, that's holy, that's pure. There's a part of me that only wants to serve Hashem, that only wants to do what's right, what's good and what's proper. And there's another part of me that couldn't care less. There's a full half of me that's made up of appetites and desires and nefesh bahami with all of the instincts that Hashem put into the animal kingdom to keep the animal alive, Hashem put within me. And if you'd like to understand what I'm referring to, I think the ladies will appreciate this maybe even more than the guys. But in the world, there's something called the sit diet. Anyone ever go on a sit diet? The ladies will recognize this in a minute. The sit diet consists of the following. The sit diet is, you take a wedge of chocolate cake in this hand. And you take a Diet Coke in this hand. You consume the entire wedge of chocolate cake. You drink the Diet Coke and you say the words, I'm so fat, I'm so fat, I'm so fat. It's a sit diet, self-inflicted torture diet. And I'd like to share with you that many, many people end up on this very same diet. My wife is one of the sharpest people I know. And when she had our first child, she went on the sit diet. And I said to her, listen, if you choose to be heavy, I'm okay with that. If you choose to be thin, I'm okay with that. But the self-inflicted torture, this is not a good way. As they say where I come from, it was going to health and it didn't help worth a dime. I kept saying it and saying it, so I said, okay, we're going to do something about it. So I took my wife to Weight Watchers. Now, this was many years ago. I was a young colo man. And this was a midday meeting, which was when I had a break from learning during lunch break. So I took my wife, and I remember the very first meeting. I'm sitting there, the only guy in the room, <clears throat> women <clears throat> all around her, and the leader gets up and says, ladies, tell me about your week. And one woman raised her hand and says, well, I was doing real well, and then somebody brought out chocolate cake. Oh, I hear the moans of the other woman. Another woman says, I was doing great until somebody brought out a bag of potato chips. Oh, potato chips. And I watched these mature adults losing it right in front of my eyes. But why? What's so difficult? Weight Watchers is a very calculated, careful diet. No one starves. Perfectly balanced, enough to eat. You don't go hungry. What's so difficult? Would you like to know what's so difficult? When a person makes a decision, I will not eat chocolate cake for the next two months. That's a firm, cognitive, intelligent decision. And then when that piece of chocolate cake is put in front of them, they say no. And there's another voice that says, mmm, I won't touch it. Yum. I'm not going to go near it. Ooh, I won't go near it. Huh. 
and back and forth and back and forth until he or she consumes the entire wedge of chocolate cake. And if you'd like to understand yourself, that is us. Two voices within us, always competing, always vying for primacy. Within me is an ashama that's pure, that's holy, that's kadosh, that feels another Jew's pain, that wants to help. And within me is a voice that couldn't care less. I don't care about anyone but my needs, my appetites, and the I who am speaking to you are made up of both. So the question is, how could Yeshaya Hanavi say to the Jewish people, you've sunk in lower than a behemoth? The reason why the ox pulls the <clears throat> plow is because that's the way Hashem created it. It has one nature. The reason why the donkey pulls the load is because that's the nature Hashem gave it. But you and I were made of two different parts. You and I have two competing natures, and the reality is the Kleinschel didn't listen to the Neshama. Yes, they gave in, they caved, but how can you say the lesson of Bahima is when a Bahima has no choice but to listen, and a Jew has two choices. And I'd like to see if we could better understand this Rashi and understand, in fact, what Yeshayanovi is saying. And to do that, I think what we have to do is really begin a thorough understanding of the human being. And to understand that, we have to go back to Adam Rishon. When Hashem created Adam Rishon and put him into Gan Eden, Adam was vastly different than you and I. Adam's neshama was so pure, so powerful, that Hashem gave him the strength to perfect himself in but a few short moments. You see, his neshama was so powerful that any imperfection within him, the neshama would just say, change, and it would change. In the example of the chocolate cake, his neshama would say, I want you to be satisfied with 2,000 calories a day. I want you no longer to crave carbohydrates. And the nefesh of Bahami would succumb, meaning it was malleable, plastic. He could mold it. And even though obviously that wasn't his job, but other Mauritians' job was to perfect himself. If he noticed a tad of anger, his job was to just change it. And like something that's malleable, that's moldable, like putty, he could change his very nature. If he felt there was a little bit too much arrogance, he would change it. When Hashem put Adam Arishan into Gan Eden, it was with the ability to perfect himself, to reach utter perfection, and to live that way for eternity. When Adam Arishan sinned, he changed the very nature of creation, he changed the world. The Derech Hashem explains that what he actually did was radically change his Nefesh Abahami. He now made himself a vastly different person. If you'd like to understand what he did, my son, when he was about seven years of age, said to me, Abba, I have a great muscle. He's reading Animorphs. Animorphs are science fiction books. And he said, this is the best muscle. There are yurks. What's a yurk? A yurk is a slug. The slug climbs into your ear and it takes over your brain. So you want to go right, but the slug says go left. And you go left. You want to go forward, but the slug says go backward, and you go backward. My son said, Ah, but isn't that a great mushal for the Yetzirah? You don't want to do something, but the Yetzirah makes you do it. Isn't it a great mushal? He was a little guy, so I didn't tell him it at the time, but that is a terrible mushal. A terrible mushal. Why? Because if you ask somebody who ends up on a website that he never dreamt about being there, but he's there, and he's looking at things that he shouldn't be, he wants to be there right then. There may be a part of him that realizes he's destroying himself, but right then he desires it, he wishes to be there, he wants it. It's not that he wants to go left and the Yitzhahara makes him go right. He and it are one. He now desires it, he now wishes for it. 
Do you know what Adam Rishon did when he ingested, when he took the eight Das inside him? He changed the very essence of him. Before that point, Adam and Chava walked around without clothing. You know why? Because they were so pure that desire never clouded their thinking and never overcame them. The Surno explains that to them, much like I eat food, that was anything that they did, it was Kaddush, it was holy. When Adam Arishan ate from the Yitzhadas, he changed the very essence of his being. And now you and I are pulled by powerful, powerful passions. <clears throat> one day this way, one day that way. Speak to me kindly and politely. I could be the nicest guy in the world. Tick me off and I become, wow, fierce, angry, harsh words. And I am a very different person than was Adam Arishan. But that wasn't the only change that Adam Rishon brought about by eating from the Das. And there was a much more significant change that he caused. And to understand that change, I think you have to understand us. You ever notice you can be dominating Shemana Esrei and literally speaking to Baruch Hu right there. Little me, having a conversation with the Creator of the heavens and earth, speaking directly there. And then my mind wanders and all of a sudden I take three, step, three steps back and I, whoa... Where am I? You ever notice we're a very strange sort of being? I can learn the halakhas of Lashon Hara. Learn that there's 17 losa says not to speak it, 14 says that you violate if you do speak it, and the minute a story comes to my lips, boom, it pops out. What happened? You know it's forbidden. You don't eat treif. You don't drive on Shabbos. Why do you speak Lashon Hara? Give and ask yourself the question about what makes me do what I do when I do it. So if you'd like to fundamentally understand yourself, I'll share with you something very, very profound. If you want to understand what makes you tick, you have to imagine a young yeshiva guy, first Purim, when he gets drunk. Look at my name, Moshe. He's 17 years of age, and he decides he's getting drunk this <coughs> Purim. And he gets drunk, but really drunk. And you notice him outside. In the street. Hey, Mushy, what are you doing? I'm playing in traffic. Mushy, you're going to get hit by a car. I know. <laughs> hit by a car. Smack, crack my back. Mushy, you're going to get hit by a car. They're going to send you to the hospital. I know. <laughs> send me to the hospital. Doctors put pins in my back. Pins. I'll go in the, in the airport. The metal detector. Ding, 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 ding. Mushy, what are you doing? Now let's focus on this conversation. He's clearly rational. He says the words, he'll get hit by a car, realizes he'll be sent to the hospital, realizes he'll have to put him back together. He clearly is focused. So what's going on? What's going on is he's drunk. On some level, he recognizes the ramifications, but he doesn't really feel it. And he doesn't understand it, and it's not real to him. If you would like to understand us, that is what Odomarishan did. When he took from the Eitzadas and put it within him, he put us in a state of confusion, of utter <clears throat> unclarity, where it's very, very difficult to feel Shabbos. It's very, very difficult to feel the Kedusha of a base Knesset. Why? Because I'm in a haze, I'm confused, I'm drunk. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't, but I'm always in a state of utter upheaval, of utter confusion. And the Darach Hashem explains that because Adam ate from the Eitz Adas, now Hashem had to change the world. Now Hashem had to introduce death. But the Darach Hashem explains that Misa, death, is not a punishment, but it rather is a reality. When Adam Arishon put this to within himself, 
He so changed reality that now the human being is incapable of reaching perfection. In our current state, we can't possibly reach perfection. Why? Because it's too difficult. And therefore, Hashem had to introduce three states. There's this state where we're in now, in my body. Then there's a state after this when my body's put in the ground and I separate. That's called the Olam HaNeshamos. The Olam HaNeshamos is where I stay for a certain amount of time. My body is in the ground and I separate. But I, with all of my thoughts, all of my memories, fully alert, acutely aware. And then there's a third stage, Tchiyas Mesim. And Tchiyas Mesim is when I'm put back into a body, a body much more similar to Admarishon, a body that I can perfect within a short amount of time, and then for eternity I remain in that state. But three separate stages. This world that we currently <coughs> inhabit, Olam Shamas when my body's put in the ground and I separate, and Tchiyas Mesim when I'm put back into a body different than the one that I have now, much more similar to Admarishon, and in that state we're able to perfect ourselves, and we live there forever. But please note the following. This world, Olam Neshamos, and Tchiyas Mesim, not a mention of Mashiach. No mention of Mashiach in there. Where does Mashiach fit into this picture? So if you look in the Rambam and Hilchus Malachim and Hilchus Tshuva, the Rambam is very clear that when Mashiach comes, it is exactly like it is now. Olam Kimin Hago Nohei. The world continues in the ways of the world. You'll still get a job. You'll still take a seed, put it in the ground, and up will sprout wheat and barley. The world will continue in the ways of the world. Very little physically will change. The key distinction is Malaya Aretz Deyas Hashem. The entire world will be filled with the knowledge of Hashem. Every human being will get it. Every human being will understand that Hashem is right here. I don't have to debate about whether this object is here or not. If I trip, I don't think about maybe if I crack my head on the concrete, it's going to hurt. I know it. Every human being will know Hashem's presence literally, palpably, right there. And explains the Rambam that that change changes everything. The changes physically in the world are minor. Yes, it's true, we'll all be in Eretz Yes, the base of Mikdash will be rebuilt. Malchus base David, the kingdom of David and Malchus will reign. But those are not the significant major changes. The major change is a realization, an awakening, a getting it. And if you'd like to understand that change, it's really quite simple. Take Moshiach, drunk Yeshiva Bachar, the next morning when he wakes up, and he's got a hangover, and his friend says to him, what were you doing last night? I don't know what they were doing. You know, you were in the street. Oh my goodness. In the street? Yeah, you were jumping in and out of the car. Oh my goodness, I could have got in. Do you know what you were doing? Oh my goodness. I could have died. Oh my goodness. What happened? What happened is he's no longer drunk. And now he looks back on what he did last night and he says, what was my problem? What was I thinking? When Mashiach comes, physically nothing changes, but everything changes radically and dramatically because every human being gets it. Every human being sees Hashem right here. Of course I don't steal, for all Hashem's watching. More than Hashem runs the world, Hashem gives everyone what they need. There's no competition, no jealousy, anxiety. What do you mean, what do you mean anxiety? If I walk down the street accompanied by the U.S. Marine Corps, I wouldn't feel nervous. Hashem is right here. Physically, almost nothing changes, but that single reality changes everything. 
Because like from darkness to the brilliant sun at midday, suddenly it turns light and everyone looks back on their world and they see things in vastly different ways. And needless to say, we will all look back on our life and wonder what in the world was I thinking. And I'd like to share with you that there are going to be some interesting reactions, one of which, ladies, you'll forgive me for, but I believe there are going to be quite a number of bonfires. Quite a number of bonfires. What do I mean? Oh, it's really quite simple. You see, you and I are going to look back on that bar mitzvah album or the wedding album, and you're going to look at what you're wearing, and you're going to say to yourself, what was my problem? Where's my sense of decency? Where's my sense of, of... of self-respect, I cannot believe I drove. what was my issue the busha is going to be incredible and I'm discussing women who dress in a sneeze manner today I'm not talking about women who dress promiscuously and on the other side of Mechitza, gentlemen, I guarantee you, <laughs> there are going to be a lot of things that we wish we had never done a lot of things we wish we had never been involved in And man, are we going to wish those filters on our computers were a lot better, a lot stronger than they are. But you see, in a heartbeat, in but a moment, reality changes. Everyone gets it. And in that moment, everything in the world changes. Every Gentile looks at a Jew and says, Oh my goodness, you're the chosen nation. The Amanifcha, God's people. You know why the Goyim run after us to help us, to assist us? Because they recognize this is Hashem's holy individual. And every once in a while I get Goyim sometimes who contact me from the Shmuz and they're very, very religious in a proper way. And the awe and respect that they treat me with lets me understand that I don't understand the awe that a Jew should be treated with. But when Mashiach comes, every human being vastly, clearly understands things with utter recognitions, utter clarity. And obviously, at that point, I don't sin. You see, now a sin, I don't know, is it bad for you, Lashon Hara, come on, does it really damage you? My friends, if you offered me a cup of bleach, if you took a bottle of Clorox and poured me a cup and said, here, drink it, I wouldn't drink it. If you paid me $100, I wouldn't drink it. If you paid me $1,000, I wouldn't drink it. Because drinking bleach damages me. And I would never do it. When Mashiach comes, every human being gets it. Every Avera in the Torah, the Torah warned us about because it damages you. It hurts you. It dirties you. It sullies you. And so obviously people don't sin. But more than that, every human being rushes after mitzvahs because they recognize the incredible accomplishments and that it does for them and it does for the world at large. Would you like to know what's it going to be like when Mashiach comes? Would you want to muscle what it's going to be like? I'll give you a simple muscle. Sheldon Adelson is a rags to riches story. He grew up as a boy in the Chicago, Jewish parents, immigrants, had nothing. At the age of 12, he started his first business. He sold that business, started another one, sold it, eventually started Comdex, the computer show. He couldn't find hotels big enough. So he started building hotels. He built bigger and bigger until he finally built the Venetian and the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas. In 2003, Sheldon Adelson was a very wealthy man. But in 2003, he did something. He took the Sands Venetian public. 
Forbes magazine <coughs> loves to count other people's money. I think they're a little bit like a Jewish accountant. And uh, oh, every Jew is an accountant, I forgot. But <coughs> in any case, <coughs> Forbes magazine tries to give us an illustration of what happened to Sheldon Adelson. You see, in a year and a half, he went from a very wealthy man to the fifth wealthiest man in the world. Billions and billions of dollars. To the extent that Forbes magazine's estimates <coughs> during that year and a half... If you'd like to know how much money he was making, he was making approximately $1 million an hour. $1 million an hour. And I thought about that. What would life be like if I were making a million dollars an hour? Wow, imagine. I open the Gemara for the Dafayomi, I close it a million dollars richer. Whoa! Sit down to a Shabbos meal and bench two and a half million dollars richer. This is amazing. Go for a shluf. Wake up $2 million more. Wow, life is amazing. A million dollars an hour. More precious than the finest gold is one word of Torah. To us now, those are words. When Mashiach comes and the haze is lifted, the drunkenness leaves us, and we wake up to reality, we'll get it. I'll understand one word of Torah is so powerful. It so changes me and changes the world I live in that it's more precious than gold and silver. And believe me, we'll shine, we'll grow. It will be a vastly different world. But the joy that we will experience is beyond description. Because earning a million dollars an hour may be fun, but after a while it gets old. Because you put a few millions and a few millions and it becomes a billion, but eventually what do you do with it? But when you're really growing and you recognize the growth and you're experiencing tremendous joy in that growth, it's an unending experience of happiness. Some Sofer says that every once in a while people ask questions. When a person dies young, they ask, why is it? Why is it that good people seem to die young? And it's sometimes true. Sometimes you'll find that younger people who die are very unique and very special. And people say, what's pshat? Is Hashem cruel? Is Hashem evil? Why do the good die young? And says the Chsam Sofa in his introduction to Yerdea, you don't understand life. That question is foolish. Explains the Chsam Sofa that Hashem put us on the planet to grow, to accomplish and if I would listen to my Yetzir Tov, if I listen to my Neshama from the time I came to dust, from the time I came to intelligence, it wouldn't take me that long to reach my level of perfection. As a matter of fact, says Zakhsam Sofer, if you see a tzaddik who's 50 years of age, 60, 70, you should ask the question, what's he still doing here? And says Zakhsam Sofer, you should know he's not here for himself anymore. He reached his perfection long ago. He's here for his family. He's here for his Talmudim. He's here for the generation. <clears throat> but no one understands it doesn't take that long to reach your level of perfection. And if a tzaddik is still here when he's 70 or 80, it's not for him any longer. But, explains the Chassam Sofer, the problem we have is sometimes we listen to our neshama and sometimes we don't. We take one step forward and two steps back. Two steps forward and three steps back. We spend so much time spinning our wheels that it takes 70, 80, 90 years to reach our level of perfection. But if we listen to that voice within, if I'd listen to that neshama from the time I came to senses, sense of das, I would grow and accomplish level after level reaching perfection. And by the way, if you ever come to a decision, a crisis, and you don't know what to do, 
You ask an Eitzah, you show an Eitzah, you ask, and you can't get the answer, or you can't ask. My Rebbe Roshiv Zatzal gave a sure-fired way to know the answer. All you have to do is ask yourself, what do I think is the right thing to do? Not what do I want, not what my interests are, not my agenda. What do I think is the right thing to do? And if you listen to that voice when it responds, every time you'll know exactly what to do. Why? Because Hashem put within you an neshama that's so pure, that's so holy, and that it's programmed to do exactly what you're supposed to do. It's the ultimate guidance system, the ultimate GPS, because Hashem created it with all of the desires and all of the needs to grow and accomplish. And I believe that's exactly the answer to this Rashi. You see, what Yeshaya Novi says to the Jewish people is, don't you understand? You have a neshama within you. That neshama would guide you. That neshama will show you. Why don't you listen? If you've become what you've become, you're lower than the behemoth. Why? Because the shore has a nature. Well, so too do you. The chamar is subservient. Well, so too are you programmed for greatness. And if you were to just listen to that voice, you would have grown, accomplished, you would have reached level after level. Why didn't you do that? You've sunk in lower than the shore, lower than the chamar, lower than the animals, because I gave you a nature for greatness. And my friends, if we leave this chazal with nothing other than that understanding, that we're, we were pre-programmed to be great, that alone is a worthwhile understanding. In 21st century America, that understanding isn't very common. This is the whatever generation. Whatever, you know, whatever. What are your goals in life? What are your aspirations? Ask a 20-year-old. Ask them that deep philosophical question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, whatever. Make some money. Spend that money. Make some more money. And we die. Whatever. You know, whatever. What do you want to do? I don't know. I'll get married. Have some kids. Whatever. whatever. What about goals? What about aspirations? What about accomplishing something? What about doing something? Changing yourself? Making your family? Whatever. And I'm not going to go into the tattoo routine, but if you study tattoos... And you realize that 35% of Americans under the age of 35 have at least one tattoo or more. And you understand that you're dealing with a generation that looks at their body like an etch-a-sketch. You know what sleeves are? Sleeves, right? Sleeves, right? Sleeves. Sleeves are tattoos that run from your shoulder all the way to the wrist. Where you cover your entire arms with it. Your neck, your head. Now listen, folks. If you're a Marine and you put the Marine Corps on your bicep, I get it. Could you explain to me people putting Pez candy dispensers on their chest? Could you explain to me men putting flowers? I saw a guy put a cut of beef. You ever go to the butcher shop and you see the cow with the different cuts, the hind, the quarter? He's got it on his forearm. What are you thinking? All right, better here, listen. I have a Yitzhar. Look at every Yitzhar. Everybody does. I got a Yitzhar. I love to get the story of the tattoo. I'm in CVS. <clears throat> the fellow behind the counter gives me the change. And there, as he puts his arm forward, I see Brenda emblazoned on his forearm. So, how do you get a guy to talk about his tattoo? You say the words, whoa, nice tattoo. <laughs> and then I couldn't resist the next question, so I said, so tell me, does Brenda have your name tattooed on her forearm? Nah, she's way too smart for that. <laughs> Listen to me. <clears throat> what do you mean by that? What you mean is you're going to drop Brenda, then go with Sally, then with Susan, then with Ed, and you're then you get married, the first wife, the second wife, the third wife. When you're 40, you're not even going to remember who Brenda or Sally or Susan was, but forever she's emblazoned on your forearm. What are you thinking? What are you thinking when you fill your body like it's an etch-a-sketch, like a piece of scrap paper? 
You know what you're thinking? It's a very simple thing. It doesn't matter. Whatever. Who cares? The body is whatever. I'm whatever. You'll be 40 and maybe you'll be at a board meeting. You'll be embarrassed. You'll cover up your neck and your whatever. It doesn't matter. And understanding that that's not quite what Hashem created the human being for. And understanding that Hashem didn't take us from under the Kisya covered, put us into this thing called life for whatever. You know, make some money, spend that money, make some more money in the bed, you'll come up, whatever. You'll ask, how'd you do? Whatever. Knowing that Hashem programmed each of us for greatness, to be good, proper, moral, holy Jews. But it's not foreign to us. It's not like we have to come to a shear, come to a shul, to basically and hear things that are strange. It's instinctive, it's natural. If you let yourself go with it, if you allow your neshama to pull you, and you listen to that voice, you'll grow level after level after level. And again, that alone is worth our understanding from this chazal. But I think there's a much bigger issue for us to learn from this chazal. You ever hear people ask the question, what do we need Mashiach for? Listen, we got it pretty good. I understand when there was anti-Semitism, when there were blood libels and pogroms, inquisitions, I get it. We need a Mashiach. That's not our world. I don't remember, maybe when I was 10 years old was probably the last time I was called dirty Jew. I haven't been hit in 35 years of being a Jew or wearing a yarmulke. I don't experience anti-Semitism and I don't believe in the streets of Forest Hills or Kugan Hills you do either. And if you tell me ISIS and Iran, I don't know. In our world, we're doing pretty well. We live in a world of freedom, opportunity. Education is available. You could do with your life exactly what you want. And I want you to understand that many people say, listen, what do you need Mashiach for? We have shuls, yeshivas, learning institutions. There's a Torah anytime. There's a Chazak. There are things here that we can grow. Who needs Mashiach? And I'd like to share with you, we need Mashiach desperately. I'll explain to you three simple reasons. <clears throat> Reason number one, when you woke up yesterday morning, how would you rate your happiness? Was it a joy, a sense of internal simcha <clears throat> sachayim within you? When you went through your day yesterday, not today, because today is Tisha B'av. But yesterday, which was Shabbos Kodesh, was this a sense within you of, wow, this thing called life is extraordinary, amazing, Baruch Hashem that I'm alive. Well, if you didn't, I'd like to ask you the following question. How could that be? Freedom, opportunity, wealth. In history, never has mankind had the kind of wealth that we have. I live in a house that far outrivals Baron Rothschild's house. If you look at Baron Rothschild's house from the 1750s, my house is larger, my house is nicer, my house has indoor plumbing, my house has heating and air conditioning that Baron Rothschild, with the billions of francs that he had, couldn't even imagine or envision. But if you don't quite get this point, I'll make it more clear. Who was the king of England during the Revolutionary War period? King George. That's right, King George. There's a famous portrait of King George sitting on the throne. Big King George with a big, big fur coat. On top of the big fur coat is a big fur pelt. And on top of the pelt is another pelt. And there you see him, big King George, sitting on the throne of England. Here's a question. 
Why is King George wearing this big, heavy fur coat and a pelt on top of it and a pelt on top of that? Well, the answer is very simple. Because Buckingham Palace was freezing cold in the winter. And the only way the king could keep warm was by wearing a big fur and a pelt and a pelt on top of that. Do you know why? Because how did he heat Buckingham Palace? There was a fireplace all over yonder. The fireplace radiant heat means it radiates out. So very nice. The king's front is warm while the king's back is cold. So Shkodakonis turns around now. The king's back is warm and the king's front is cold. With the crown jewels, the king could not heat Buckingham Palace. He walked cold, smelly, dank hallways at night. He got into a mattress filled with 48 inches of duck feather. You know what happens to your back? When you wake up in the morning, there's no chiropractor to put your back together. The king rode in the royal coach. And as you probably know, the royal coach was pulled by 12 white steeds. But you may not be aware that the royal coach had wooden wheels. And the roads were filled with potholes. And when the king of England got into the royal coach, it went... And when he was invited to the Duke of France's wedding for seven days... Little me, I get into my Toyota Camry. Air suspension ride. Air conditioning. Stereo sound. I have solved 50% of Shalom Bias' problems. We have dual controls on the heating. My wife likes it hotter or colder. I put her side, my side, your side. It's perfect. I have luxuries that kings of England couldn't imagine, couldn't envision. Go to Walmart. You'll see an abundance of material things that you can buy. You know what clothing was like back in the 1500s in England? Scratchy and itchy. But if you don't get this point, hear this very well. It was an accepted medical fact in England that during the winter time, it's bad for your health to bathe. So people in England did not take a bath from October till March. With lice-filled beds, bed bugs, and worse than that, you lived in cold, smelly homes. There was no heating, no air conditioning. Barely could you stop the wind from coming in. Man suffered tremendously back then. We live in the lap of luxury. We have opportunity, freedom, luxuries that are unimaginable to people living 200 years ago. So here's the question. Answer it immediately after I ask it to yourself. Are you rich? Rich? Are you rich? I can barely pay my mortgage. I'm rich? What are you kidding? If you were to ask people 200 years ago to look at your life, they'd be astonished. The clothing, the shoes, and the foods that you eat. Look in your pantry. You eat foods from... Bermuda, from China. You ever eat an apple in May? Apples don't grow on the trees in May. They grow in the end of October. But you can have fruit of any country in any season by going to the supermarket and by and large we have enough money to buy it. We have such luxuries that it's hard to imagine. So here's the question. Why aren't we enjoying them? But more than that, do you understand the wisdom and forethought that Hashem put into this world? to put flavors into food, to put beautiful sights out there? How many times have you looked at an ocean and say, wow, that's astonishingly beautiful, marabu masat Hashem. How many times have you looked at a, a mountainscape and said, that's gorgeous, I'm so moved by it. Why don't you appreciate the beauty? Why don't you appreciate what Hashem put into the world? 
And I'd like to share with you the answer to why. You see, Viktor Frankl was a Viennese psychiatrist. Viktor Frankl found out that he was Jewish when he was put on a train bound for Auschwitz. Viktor Frankl survived the war, and he wrote a book. The book is called Man in Search of Meaning. This book has two parts to it. The first part, Viktor Frankl describes what it was like when he was in Auschwitz when he tried to play psychiatrist, when he tried to be dispassionate, you know, to step back and analyze the psyche of the inmates. It's a very harrowing read. The second part of the book is when he describes landing on the Upper East Side in New York, and he opened his psychiatric practice. He had been a world-famous psychiatrist. He put out a shingle, and very quickly his practice was filled. But he describes that the patients that he was now seeing had no connection to the patients that he had seen for decades in Europe. The symptoms were not the same. <clears throat> the prognosis was He just didn't recognize it. And he describes what would happen. A man would walk in, and he would say, what can I do for you? Well, doc, I'm depressed. Sorry to hear that. Is it your, uh, your marriage? No. Your kids? No. Your business? No. So why are you depressed? I know, doc. That's why I'm here. A woman would come in, <clears throat> 40 years of age. What can I do for you, madam? I'm depressed. Is your marriage? No. <clears throat> your kids? No. Your bridge game? No. Why are you depressed? I don't know, Doc. That's why I'm here. Patient after patient would come in without an attributable cause. An attributable cause means a reason to be depressed. If you're married for 35 years and your spouse dies, that's a trauma. That's an issue that you have to deal with, and it certainly makes sense why it may take a person a while to dig out of that. If you have a genetic predisposition, a gift from your parents, that's an attributable cause, and that's a reason for depression. But these patients had no attributable cause. There was no reason for them to be depressed. And Viktor Frankl, from a psychiatric, secular vantage point, writes that these people were depressed for one reason. They had no purpose, no reason for living. If you're 45 years of age and you're making tons of money and you're world famous, but there's an emptiness inside because within you there's a voice that says, so what? What are you accomplishing? What are you doing? What do you mean I'm famous? Yeah, what are you doing? I got lots of money, so what? And there's a vacuum, a vapid emptiness within you. And says Viktor Frankl from a secular vantage point that if you don't have purpose and you don't have reason for living, you will be depressed. And folks, he got it 100% correct. Do you know why? Because he's right. When Hashem took you, the Neshama, from under Hashem's throne of glory and put you into this body, it wasn't for whatever. It was to grow, to accomplish, to change the essence of you, and to change those around you, to make yourself into a great person. And if you live life that way, you grow, you accomplish, and you and you are in harmony. You're in peace with yourself. But if you run from that voice, and you try to fill the vacuum with busyness and distractions, honor and desire, what you do is you run and you run and you run and you become ever more hungry. I read a novel when I was a kid about a black fellow who grew up in, uh, in the South in the 1920s. But he describes poverty back then. He describes going to sleep at night without food, waking up in the morning without food. Hunger was constantly surrounding him. He was always hungry. Until one day he's walking to school and he found a solution. He passed the neighbor's garden hose and he opened the spigot and he began drinking and drinking. He filled his belly with as much water as it could hold and the hunger pangs abated. They no longer bothered him. Until 20 minutes later when the water passed and he was more hungry than before. 
If you'd like to understand our generation, you have people who are thirsting, people who need, and they try to fill that need with all kinds of things, from the iPhone to the Android, from Facebook to Twitter, busy and busy and busy and busy, and they wake up in the morning, they wake up at night with an emptiness inside that's more acute and more powerful than it began. And you know why it is? Because Hashem didn't put you on the planet for whatever. Hashem put you here to grow, to accomplish. You were given a Torah with the mitzvahs, which showed you exactly what to do, exactly how to live your life. And when you live life that way, you grow, you accomplish, and there's an inner joy. And the more that a person lives a Torah life, the more happiness is within him, and the more he can appreciate the beauty of this world, the more he can appreciate the wonders of life, and the more you enjoy this life right now. But there's a much bigger reason why we need Mashiach. 500 years ago, life was very, very harsh. People suffered in a very real way. We don't suffer anymore, not physically. But there's always a balance. And I do believe that today people suffer more than ever before. Not physically, but emotionally and psychologically. There is more unhappiness, more distress, more people who are suffering internally than ever in the course of history. Do you know that currently there are 10 times the reported cases of depression today than there were 30 years ago? But that's not the scariest part. The scariest part is that the median age, sort of almost the average age, used to be 30, it's now 15. And we're talking about tens of millions of cases of reported clinical depression in this country every year. Science also lets us in on a little secret. The vast majority of them don't have an attributable cause. As a matter of fact, only 16% have a trauma or have a genetic predisposition. The 84%, the vast majority, whatever. I don't know, Doc, I'm depressed, I'm down, whatever. Okay, so maybe get a new Facebook page, a new identity, create a cyber vision. In fact, another thing that I don't say to my children anymore, I used to say it regularly is, I used to say to them, thank God I was not born in your generation. Because if you would like to know what it's like growing up as a kid in today's world, it's very, very unsettling. And I don't just mean the Supreme Court ruling. And I don't just mean immorality in general. There's such utter confusion and there's such utter lack of stability. America in the 1950s was a stable, normal place. I have a friend of mine, I used to learn with him, he's a child psychiatrist. He told me that his practice is a bit different. See, he says in America it used to be that two parents had eight kids. That was America in the 1920s and 1930s. He says, the kids who come to my practice, it's two kids and eight parents. You see, the first parents get married. Bob and Sue get married and have two kids. Well, Bob and Sue get divorced. They get remarried. So the second marriage, but the second marriage fails. And then they each have a third marriage. By the time the kids are brought into my office, he says, there are eight parents between parents and step-parents. The kids are so confused, I can't even deal with them. I can't even work with them. My friends, if you'd like to know why we need Mashiach, it's because life as we're leading it right now is not the way it's supposed to be. Hashem didn't create the world for people to suffer. Hashem didn't create a world for there to be misery out there. And people sometimes ask, if Hashem is so merciful, if Hashem is so kind, why is there so much suffering? And the answer is that's a danger called free will. And if you knew that in a heartbeat, like that, it all changes. When Mashiach comes, the sun 
just start shining from total darkness. It's a brilliant sun at midday, and every human being knows why they're here. Every human being does what's good, what's right, what's proper. <clears throat> every human being detests doing things that are ugly and bad. And there's a joy, there's a happiness, there's, a, there's an unbridled simcha. And if you want to know why we need Mashiach, it's not just because of the anti-Semitism and not just because of the base of Mikdash, it's because the amount of unhappiness, the lack of joy that's out there. And I think this Chazal is sharing with us a profound concept. Physically, there's no difference between now and Mashiach time. Okay, granted we're in Israel. <clears throat> granted there's a Malchus based Dovid, a king from David's reign. And granted there's a base of Mikdash, but the world is the same. Do you know what that's saying to us? The world we live in is Gan Eden. Look at the flowers, look at the <coughs> trees, look at the flavors and aromas in food. This world is gorgeous. This world is astonishing. And if we had it right, and we were leading our life 100% correctly, there'd be an inner joy and a happiness. This is Gan Eden. It doesn't need a change. Unfortunately, it needs a major change, but that's because we get so pulled into the muck and the mire. Sometimes we listen to the Shema and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we take one step forward and sometimes we take three steps back and we spend so much time creating bad habits and bad thoughts that we get into these ruts of utter nonsense and we destroy ourselves. And maybe it's true. Maybe it's true that we can't extricate ourselves. We can't pull ourselves out and we down Hashem, bring Mashiach. But you should also know that any step that you take forward in terms of making yourself more of a Ben Torah, adopting more of a Torah lifestyle, gives you more joy, more happiness, obviously fulfill your purpose in creation, but you as a person, you as a family member, you as a part of the community become a different human being. And you enjoy this world much more. It could be it's not the reason, but it certainly is a reason. And I have one more step I want to add. If you watch in Earth to Stroll today, there's something called Zaka. Zaka are the first responders. You can see them on their motor scooters. You can see them running with their bags. They're always on the scene first. Sometimes their job is first aid. Many times their job is to pick up the pieces. There's a thing called Kavana Mace. And if a body is blown up, it's still a Jewish body and it deserves a burial. And you can see them scraping the buses to take off the skin and collect the blood to give it Kavana Mace. And some people sometimes say, what a Kiddush Hashem. You see guys with beards and pants running first responders on their motor scooters to get there first and they clean things up. It's a big Kiddush Hashem. I'd like to share with you, I cannot imagine a bigger Chilol Hashem. Do you know what it means that we have trained first responders to pick up the body pieces? Jewish blood is so cheap that in the Chutzot Yerushalayim, in the streets of Jerusalem, they blow men, women, and children up like they're putty. Do you know what a churban that is? Do you know what a Gentile is supposed to say when they see a Jew? Oh my goodness, that's Hashem's chosen nation. And a Gentile should get off the sidewalk because that's God's people. And that's not exactly the reaction. And when Israel is by far the most moral nation in the world, when the UN blasts it time after time, no one understands you're watching a Chil Hashem. It's God's world. He created the world, he maintains it, he orchestrates it, and he keeps you arrogant UN president exactly in existence, and you have the audacity to mock his people. There are many thoughts that a Jew should have on Yom Kippur. 
the primary thought should be that life as we're leading it now is not the way it's supposed to be. There's supposed to be an inner joy, a happiness. We're supposed to be a wholly chosen nation. We're not supposed to be threatened by physical threats or psychological threats or constant being pulled to different things. We're supposed to be serving Hashem in joy and simcha. That's how Hashem created the world to be and that's what Hashem wants it to be. And if you want to know why we need Mashiach, it's because there's so much pain and so much suffering. And as a community, as a nation, I don't know if we can extricate ourselves. As individuals, I think we can. And every step forward that you take is another step forward for yourself. And I want to close with one last thought. While it's true that we should desperately crave Mashiach, while it's true that we should dominate to Hashem again and again and again and beg Hashem for Mashiach, the Chavetz Chaim also explains, don't wish so hard. Don't daven so vehemently. Why? He explains there is one advantage of living right before the time of Mashiach comes. And that is, he says, imagine a time of war. Imagine a time of war. And people are fighting for the king, for the army, for the country. A fellow can go from the rank of corporal to sergeant in one battle. He fights valiantly and he gets a promotion becomes a sergeant. One more battle where he leads his men with courage and intelligence and he goes to be a level lieutenant he leads his platoon on a mission and he could get to a captain within two short years he could go up and rank major colonel he could become a general within a short amount of time because you're doing so much you're saving the country but in times of peace it doesn't work that way in times of peace if you're a corporal you have to study take tests and wait years to get to the rank of sergeant and if you then take more tests and study more maybe, maybe you could get to the rank of lieutenant. And then you take more tests and study more, and years and years later, after 20 years, maybe you can make it to captain, but you're going to stay about there. Explains how it's time, the one advantage of living in a time right before Mashiach is because the challenges are so extreme, and the pain is so real, and there's so much growth opportunity, and people in our generation, and you could see them in your own community, in your own shul, grow and accomplish and they reach levels that are hard to imagine they walk the same earth as you and I do they breathe the same air but they're literally climbing level after level are they Sadiqim like Rabbi Akiva? no are they like Rabbi Yossi or Maglili? no but for this generation they're incredible and knowing that and understanding that you can change, understanding that you are programmed for greatness, understanding that if you adopt keeping Shabbos as you should do it, if you adopt learning as you should learn, if you take on a mitzvah and you grow in it and you continue growing, you're accomplishing worlds and worlds, and if you could ever break away from that I, whatever that is, whatever comes after that I, the android or the other one over there, whatever it is, if you could ever break it, and break away from Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatever else absorbs your consciousness and battles your brain and destroys you, you can reach levels and levels and levels of height. My friends, we live in rather unique times, rather strange times. Never in the course of history has it been so easy to grow. So easy to grow because it's so easy to fall. I had a fellow who called me from England out of trouble. He had a question, what to do? His son was over at the cousin's house and the two boys were on the iPad watching pornography and he calls me up with what to do about the problem. Now folks, boys watching pornography is a problem. What if they're coming away from England for? The problem was the age of the two boys. The two boys were seven years old. And when you're seven years old and you're pre-sexual and you're seeing things 
that you don't understand, that you can't relate to. It's traumatic. It's destructive. But you're talking about a generation being brought up with these kind of things as normal. When you're talking about a Supreme Court ruling that says whatever, it's okay. Everything, everything is good. My wife wants to know if you can marry a tree. I told her, I said, there's a tree outside. I like that tree. Maybe that one, that one. I don't want to get my wife jealous. I don't want to tell her about the, the birch tree I'm looking at. You know, I don't want to tell her. But, but that's the world we look at, live in. And if in this kind of world you could separate yourself and you could follow the mitzvahs of the Torah and you can grow and accomplish, you reach heights, you reach levels that are unimaginable. When Mashiach comes, stop. The curtain comes down. Whatever you are, yes, you can grow but it's much more sluggish because everybody sees the value of mitzvahs. Everybody understands the danger of an Avera. So nobody does stupid things. So the growth is much more slow. Now you could ascend, you could rise level after level. Mashiach coming is great because it relieves the pain and will have a simcha and a happiness, but it also has a cost. The cost is this grand opportunity of life as we lead it now is gone. No longer can we jump and fly up level after level. Despite that fact, may Hashem granted that this be the last Tishbov we spend as a a veilous day. May next month we spend in Shalayim Abuya. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.